Welcome to the Director's Podium. I'm your host, Adam Christie. Our guest today, oh, he's a keeper, everybody. He is amazing. Okay, he is the Chair of Music Education and the Associate Director of Bands at the Lawrence University Conservatory of Music in Appleton, Wisconsin. He has conducted all over the world. He has done clinics all over the world. He has a company which is up. Beat Global. That can be reached at upbeatglobal.com. And he'll tell us more about that. But their mission is to inspire positivity through leadership and music around the world. Whoa. I know. You just want to rewind that, take it in again, and you're going to love it. Okay. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. Matthew Arau. So, Matthew, thanks for coming today. We really appreciate your time. It's such a pleasure to be here, Adam, on, on your podcast. Just thanks so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to share with you tonight. You know, we just, the one cool thing about our podcast is we have like a history or we're building a history of some amazing guests. When you have people like yourself and Tim Altenheiser and Peter Boonshaft and Christine Bass and list goes on. It's just like such an incredible group. And you are right there, my friend. Um, so would you tell us how long have you been teaching and uh, what made you want to be a teacher? Well, Adam, I, I started teaching after my student teaching in 1997 in Loveland, Colorado. I was a middle school and high school band director split. And uh, so I beginning there, 15 years in the public school, middle school, and then high school and the, and the collegiate. It's been Gosh, we're going on 24, going on 25 years. Um, and, but I, I think about really, I, I started teaching at a young age in many ways, you know, teaching private lessons when I was in junior high, but I could even share that, you know, teaching lessons to my younger brother, <laughs> Javier, who's now an incredible jazz, jazz musician in New York City. I taught him saxophone. Um, but music uh, and teaching is it's really, been in my family and, and and in my blood, particularly teaching. My mom was just always teaching, and and she was a guest teacher in the schools teaching Spanish. So I kind of grew up with with teaching, um, something that I uh, I enjoyed doing growing up. But I didn't always know how to become a teacher. Actually, I actually had had many dreams uh, from from my youth. One was to become a rock and roll star. Really. <laughs> I actually had my own band. It's oh, called Annual Flames. What was the name of this band? <laughs> okay. I, I, I didn't expect to get on, on this tonight. Oh, this but is great. This is funny. I, I, I wrote my first song when I was five years old, and, and, and it was called I Would Like to Be a Gardener. <laughs> and I was just inspired by, I was inspired by my grandparents' gardener and, 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 and the care that he took in mowing the lawn and all that. So I wrote this song. I was like, I would like to be a gardener. If I could, if I could. Anyways, I could go on and on, but it's, it's so much passion. And, you know, I didn't know how to write music. I just wrote lyrics and made up. And, and my first instrument was a tennis racket. Really? I, and so I started this band. My younger brother joined on the drums a couple years later, and we just used 31 Flavors, Baskin Robbins, ice cream, empty cartons, and turned, flipped those over to make drums, and we played them with chopsticks. So that's how the band started. Do you guys have a name for that band? Yeah, we were called the Annual Flames. 
We even had a logo and everything. I was highly influenced by Journey. And I just thought like the album covers of Journey were super cool. So I had like flames and lightning bolts and all this stuff. So you have a second career plan, really. After you retire from teaching, that's your path. <laughs> so, you know, so that, that was something I, I considered doing. I, I also was really in academics. So you know, I, I pursued actually, a, I have a major in government as an undergrad in addition to a few different music majors. And so I really considered uh, pursuing a pathway, uh, whether you know, it was in law or political science professor. And I, I was certified to teach political science. I actually taught US history and civics in addition to band while I was student teaching. But uh, in there, I also uh, dreamed of being a professional jazz musician. Okay, you wrote an, you wrote an article I mean, you've written lots of articles. Let's be honest. There are lots of them. Um, the ones that I found were like six, which that is like six more published than I have. So congratulations. Um, and what it, it was called Connecting Through Vulnerability. It was in a Touchpoint newsletter, I think. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about vulnerability. What would you say is your definition of vulnerability? Yeah, well, I, I, I use some other words to, to reflect on this idea of vulnerability and the words that come to my mind are openness, um, authentic, real, um, like uh, taking off the armor or, 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 or you know, peeling off like the protective layers and sharing from the heart is how I view vulnerability. And it's difficult to share. Uh, it can be really hard to get to that place of openness and, and trust. Trust is definitely a key piece to consider with vulnerability. But I was really inspired by the writing and the work of Brene Brown. And for listeners, she has a great TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability. And her book, Daring Greatly, was the first work I read by her. And she shared that while it's very difficult for the person who's burying their soul and putting themselves out there for criticism, right? And just putting themselves out there for, for the public to, 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 to make comments and whatnot. It's difficult, but that is an act of courage. And others, when we see people do that, what she refers to as daring greatly, uh, referencing a Teddy Roosevelt quote about, it's, it's not the critic who counts. It's the one who like, is it in the arena? Man in the arena. Yeah, the man in the arena, right? But, but but just going for it is what matters. And I think that's that's what vulnerability is, is, is just putting yourself out there and, and sharing who you are as a human being. So, you know, what's funny is that Brene Brown is actually going to be on our show next week. And when I read this, that you like look to her and whatnot, I actually have a surprise for you, Brene. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I, she's not. She's not coming on. She's she got me. No, got me so no, she's not coming on. We're like on a TV show. She's like yeah. hanging out. I I tried. I've sent her a message, but she hasn't responded. So she'll join the other millions of women out in the world. Yeah. Um, okay. So, how does a teacher, you know, vulnerability takes openness. It talks about all those things. It, it needs to be reciprocated in, in a safe environment. 
how does that work with students? You know, because when you talk about love and when you talk about loving students, um, it's a fine line because there've been obviously some bad examples of that, but there've been some wonderful examples of that. Um, how does a teacher, how do they go about appropriately loving their students? Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, coming from a place of care and compassion and respect and, and, and a, coming from that heartfelt place of intention for wanting to lift your students up um, from wherever they are. And, and that they're, they're more than somebody holding an instrument, right? That they are a person with, with feelings and emotions and, uh, you know, a whole um, scope of, of humanity and recognizing that and, and, and reaching out and, and acknowledging their, their value as a human being is, is an act of love, right? Um, and I think that's living from love is, is, is a place uh, of, that we can lead from, to, to lead with love. And, and actually a concept that's influenced me came from a choral conductor, James Jordan, who's the conductor of the Westminster Choir. And he, he shares this idea in The Musician's Soul, his, one of his earlier books, this idea of mimetics. And it really stuck with me. I got to do a, a couple of conducting workshops with him. And so as a young conductor, and he shared, you know, when you get in front of the group and you've studied the score, you have an image in your mind of, of what you want the music to sound like, right? And we get in there and we start conducting and the music that comes back at us doesn't match our vision. There's a clash, right? Because the, the ensemble is not where we want them to be yet, right? And all too often, the re reaction from a conductor is to get frustrated and to enter this like negative column, really. Like if we can get frustrated, we can actually feel angry and kind of tight inside. And that, that's a normal physiological like reaction when our image doesn't match the sound coming at us. But what James Jordan encourages, is he says, you know, in, if we take a moment to respond rather than react, almost like a microsecond to just breathe it in, choose our response. And instead of choosing frustration, James Jordan says, choose love. What he says is to choose love, meaning choose that I'm here to teach. Whatever's coming at me, this is my opportunity to help my students grow. And, and that idea has really stuck with me for, for 25 years. And another concept is that when he steps up to the podium, instead of just like putting his arms up and boom, he literally thinks of embracing the ensemble like this and bringing the ensemble to his heart and leading from the heart. And, and that's, that's where a lot of these thoughts come from to lead with love. Okay, so my question is, I'm, I'm gonna ask a question on the behalf of a new teacher somewhere that, that maybe they are filling the shoes of a former teacher. Um, and this is a beloved teacher that they were replacing. So already when you enter that uh, fray, the kids are closed off because you're not, you know, the person that they, you know, were taught by and they loved. Um, and so they kind of close off 
And so then you're in this weird position because you want to be vulnerable. You want them to be vulnerable, but it is one-sided. Um, how do you get it from being one-sided to being reciprocal? Yeah. Well, first of all, I can absolutely relate to the question. Uh, both times uh, when I took over middle school and then when I took over the high school, I was in this, that exact position. I was following a teacher who had been there for a super long time, highly successful, beloved by the students. And that's so challenging when you're a new teacher or even a seasoned teacher taking over from somebody who uh, is like a, an icon or a legend, right? And try as you might, you know, try not to change anything, but just by being you, just by being different, uh, there can be resistance. And there is mo more often than not resistance from the students. And I had that both times. Um, uh, beginning of my career and in the middle of my public school career. And it's very difficult. And, and one of the things that we learn is, is like perseverance, right? It, this is not something that happens immediately. And you, you just can't go up there and be vulnerable all of a sudden, right? You have to, you have to earn respect and earn trust uh, before you can get to that place. And what I found is that building connections with students can happen uh, not only in the full ensemble, but also in those small group or one-on-one -on -one interactions. Students, as they're arriving, greeting them, you know, being interested as they're leaving, uh, if, if they come into your office at lunch, uh, attending events that the students are involved in, if they're sporting events, just so that they see that, hey, you're here for the long haul and you really care. And, and that, again, goes back to another beautiful Teddy Roosevelt quote, which is, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and I think that's such a salient uh, wisdom really hmm. uh, to, to, to always remember is that, you know, if students are not there with you um, yet, it's not so much about you. It's just that uh, it takes time for them to accept you into their life. Um, how long did it take you until you finally felt like you had gotten through? Yeah. So as, as a middle school director, I remember there was like one eighth grade class. There was a lot of resistance. The other eighth grade class was a lot more accepting. Um, the sixth graders, of course, they, they don't know any better. So they're, they're right there with you. And the seventh graders hadn't had enough of the other director to, to care so much. But it's particularly like one eighth grade class when I was a middle school director. And when I took over the high school, it was the senior class. M many of the seniors uh, resisted my, my leadership and almost like blaming me for their, t their teachers leaving before I got there. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that, that's actually a very common this is transitions has been researched and that's, that's a very common thing. Students feel betrayed and they take it out on the, on the new director. And so I had a really rough first uh, semester at the high school. And then the beginning of second semester, I had two trombonists knock on my office door. And they said, Hey, Mr. Rao, we're really concerned with, you know, kind of like how the seniors are acting and, and is there anything that, that we can do? Because we, we believe in the band and we believe in you. And I was so grateful to these two students. They reached out to me. And I said, I'm so happy that, that this is on your mind. That's on my mind too. I said, let's go ahead and meet after school. Let's set up a meeting like in a couple of days. And let's just talk about what kind of band 
and we want to create. It had opened to everybody in the band. And uh, you didn't have to be a student leader. You don't have to be from a particular grade. So uh, first years through seniors, they could, anybody could come. And uh, we, we sat in a big circle and I showed a, a video clip of, of Tim Lotzenheiser talking about servant leadership. We just watched five, 10 minutes of that to spark a conversation about which direction we could go with the group and, and the leadership style. Uh, uh, there hadn't been training to, to, to uh, foster this idea of, of servant leadership. It was the, the model of like the best player becomes the leader. There's not a, and a lot of top down leadership, student leadership. And so I was planting seeds for a new direction. And uh, this leadership symposium gave voice to the students. And I spent most of my time actually facilitating and listening to students and empowering them. And that process of empowerment, training, and giving students a voice led to a culture change in that semester. So that by the next year, in my second year, the culture had been transformed. Wait a second. Come on now. It was not transformed in a year. <laughs> and, and what was so fantastic about it is that the change came from the students. Mm. And that that's the powerful thing. So we flipped the leadership model and it became like, hey, what, what do you want? We also created a marching show in, in that second year that um, really united the band and the community uh, around um, uh, an emotional uh, value that brought everybody together. And I think that was a key element also. You know, Dr. Frank Battisti, uh, he is such a cool guy. And I talked with him this past Sunday. And you know what he said to me? He said it takes, get this, 15 years, not four, like I had always heard. Frank said 15 years. And I was like, Frank, what the hell? Who's going to stay somewhere 15 years if it isn't going well? Like, how do you? But he said 15 years. And when Frank Battisti says 15 years, I'm like, well, I guess it's 15 years. I'm not, I'm not going to argue. <laughs> Hopefully people will stay in the profession that long to have an opportunity to see that. Oh, I know. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be like shifts and stuff. But but the, the, having the, the leadership symposium was, was such an important uh, shift in the program. And yeah, I mean, every year, you know, you're growing as a teacher. And, you know, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers, and you, you may have been exposed to the 10,000 hour rule, and you add that up, that's like 10 to 12 years of being a teacher of when you can achieve mastery, right? And so, you know, just teaching for longer and longer, we start to become, uh, or self-actualize, we become who we're meant to be as a teacher, right? And, and so many things start to click in that 10th or 12th year. Um, so there's something to Batiste's idea of the 15 year mark um, as well to, to consider for sure. Who am I to, to question that? But yeah, I, I, would, I would think uh, that, that you don't need to wait for 15 years. I think it, a lot of it depends on student leadership. If you have students like you had that will speak out um, and they will try to rally the group because once one or two people start publicly affirming you, um, then it can start to turn the tide. But uh, if something happens, which 
I'm kind of currently going through with, which is if there is a culture of when somebody says the right thing or when somebody says something positive or when somebody leads, they just bury that person because you cannot be great. I must be great. And if you're being too great, I'm going to knock you down to size. And that culture, I, I just, I don't know how many years it's going to take, but it, it's hard to, to overcome. But yeah, I'd say the difference is that student leadership, that if you can get those students to really buy in, then it could happen really quick. And then it's a continual process of growth. So we didn't just do the leadership symposium for for a semester and, and say we're done. I mean, we continued it every year I was there. And in fact, the, the director who's followed me, he's still at the school and he, he still implements the leadership symposium. So it's just become part of the fabric, the identity of being part of that program. Well, we have another leadership podcast. So people, if you want to hear more about leadership, then you come on down to the podcast Leading Change. Uh, you can find that on the same platform. You probably found this, including YouTube. And the website is www.leadingchangepodcast.com. But for now, we're going to stick in the teaching realm, even though they cross over a lot. Has teaching changed over the years? Have, have Do you think their students have changed over the years, like their motivations and their attitudes and stuff? Do you think that's changed from when you first started uh, to now? For sure, you know, have, have students changed? Yeah, society's changed. Like, like, society's changed really quickly in terms of one, one thing we think of is technology, right? So the role of technology in society has certainly impacted uh, students, right? And, and so that's an element. And uh, social media has such a massive presence that it wasn't there when I started my career. You know, the internet was just getting started, right? Uh, in, in the beginning of my career, now the way we can reach students uh, through technology is incredible. The access to, to so many different resources and that the pandemic has transformed the way we, we deliver instruction and, and the way we connect uh, with students. So I certainly think 2020 is like this uh, tipping point or turning point that is going to uh, impact change in music education for sure. I, I know that the pandemic has also caused us, allowed us to focus more on the importance of keeping students connected. And that's why SEL or social emotional learning in the classroom has become uh, so important. Trauma informed instruction has also become so important. Uh, many more teachers are bringing mindfulness into their classes just to help students center and focus and ground uh, e each other really for the teacher and the student. So I think there is a, this, this uh, awareness that we need to teach the whole child. Um, and I'm not, I wouldn't say that that didn't exist when I started my career. I think, you know, we attempted to do that, but I think there's a more intentional awareness and focus on, on you know, the, the humanness and, and the need for, for connection. And to refer to Brene Brown again, she, she says that as human beings, we are hardwired for love, connection, and belonging. And when we don't have that, uh, we, we experience pain, loneliness, disassociation. And, and that's a, a really serious 
issue with students um, today that, that we as, as music teachers uh, can almost like harness the power of music mm-hmm. to help build those bridges in ways that are really necessary with our students. One of the questions we ask frequently on here is because we try to humanize um, our guests in a sense. I mean, we, we know they're superheroes, but we also want people to relate. Um, what would you say as a teacher, what were, what are your weaknesses? And then how did you overcome them? I don't know that I've overcome them <laughs> all, you know, but uh, geez. And I, I say as, as musicians, I think we can all relate that that we are our worst critics. I just, I, I think that as musicians, we're often filled with self-doubt and, and just think of like even our recitals that we gave as undergrads. You know, we probably played a thousand notes. The three notes that we misplayed or something is like what we think about afterwards, right? So we're always thinking about what, you know, what we could have done better. It's almost like a curse and a blessing, right? Um, but for me, I, 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 grew up playing jazz and really loved improvisation. And when I got to Lawrence University where I did my undergrad and now I, I'm a professor there, I remember going in to take the, the ear training exam. So I'm gonna bring up ear training or, or my ear was, was, it was a weakness. So I'd never done like classical ear training. I remember, and many of your listeners can probably remember this as an undergrad, like the terror of, of ear training. And, and they gave me the, uh, the placement exam and I was listening to these chord progressions. And for me, everything sounded like Canon and D. <laughs> Bachholz, Canon and D, like every progression. And, and so I answered my, my questions. And, and uh, th- then the, the assessor is one of the professors. He said to me, he said, do you have perfect pitch? And then I said, no. And then he said, oh, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but he said he was required to ask that for some reason but that, that was the beginning you know and and in college I got, got placed in like the lowest music theory class because it's based on ear training and and that is such a, a moment like like a brain like you come into college think like you you know you're doing really well and then you get nailed with with the, with the ear training and that almost like starts to define you at least it did with me. And I remember I had a, a neighbor my, my second year in college in, in the dorms. And he, he shared with me, he had perfect pitch and he shared with me, it wasn't until he was 15 years old that he realized that not everybody else in, that he knew had perfect pitch because to him, it was just like seeing colors. And, and I had a girlfriend in college who said, you mean when they play the excerpt on the piano, you don't see it in your, in your mind on a staff? all written out and I said no no I'm trying to like sing here comes the bride to pick figure out the perfect four so <laughs> anyways that was that's uh, something that I, I really struggled with and and I think you said you know how did how did you deal with it why well, I just went after it with a vengeance how about more broadly as an educator rather than strictly music I, I think there's so many things to figure out in the early years I think I was really driven on on the music side and uh, thinking you know I want to have like a perfect concert you know, get the pieces to sound as as good as they can that I neglected the, some of the human element that I was just talking about about like tending to that I think I was I, I remember one day I, I I I would do like pop pop challenges 
or pop quizzes in band. And, and one day I, I, I just went down the line, had everybody like clap this rhythm and, and the, the principal trumpet player didn't get the rhythm right. And I moved him from first chair to fourth chair. And, and, and that day he went to the counseling office and dropped band. And, and, and so I would say that, that, I, that was, you know, a, a, a error of judge error in judgment, you know, uh, think, um, thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is going to just build a motivation and whatnot. But in fact, it, it had the opposite effect. So it definitely had a lot to learn in terms of, um, you know, making sure that the students are doing okay uh, and not making like the product uh, sacrifice the well-being of a student. And I think early in my career, that was something I needed to wrestle with. So let's just go to that situation really quick. Um, so what was the what was the impact on their fellow players, their fellow band people that stayed of that person leaving? That's a really good question. Now, the, the reason, just to give us some context, this was something that the prior director kind of did regularly. And, and so I was just trying to follow in their footsteps, thinking, you know, there was challenge system was a big deal. Um, and, and I didn't think that it was so out of the ordinary. So I, I actually can't recall, you know, the, the other three trumpets, how, how they responded. Um, I definitely saw it as a loss. Yeah. I just wonder if it, if it did exactly what you thought, maybe not for that one child, but for everyone else, it set a standard. Yeah. I mean, the way I try to live now is to, to have a high standard in music, but not at the expense of, you know, somebody's dignity. Yeah. Do you do chairs? Uh, at, at Lawrence University, we we do auditions and we do select um, a section leader. Who's generally the, the ranked first in the auditions, but then we mix up the seating arrangement for each piece. So students can have an experience being a principal player while they might not be the section leader. So the section leader's responsibility is to lead sectionals. But if you're a principal player on a piece, you co-lead the sectional for that piece with the section leader. And can you challenge that person or is it there that for the year? It depends on the studio. Most studios just do auditions once and then it's set. But at Lawrence, it's, it's a really supportive family studio environment where I, I haven't seen that um, that attitude, like, oh, I want to bump somebody out of their, out of their chair is just, I haven't seen that. And I think that's been fostered to have a, a non-competitive environment amongst the students, right? It's, it's more about competing against yourself than against the other students. Let's talk a little bit about administration. Um, when you were doing public school and whatnot, what was your relationship like with those administrators? Yeah, well, I always tried my best to, to have a really positive <laughs> uh, relationship. Um, it didn't. It wasn't all. It, did, it wasn't always roses, you know. And I started this band when I was a middle school director that met in the evening from six to eight p.m. and we called it the Honor Band. And in the first few years we we did it, it just met once a week. And it was an opportunity to break through the uh, grade-based grouping. So there were sixth grade bands, seventh grade bands, eighth grade bands, 
And I wanted to have an ability-based group that would allow like sixth graders who really excelled to play, you know, with, with, with the eighth graders and the seventh, like to, to make a mixed grade grouping band of students that wanted to go further. And so we'd rehearse two hours a week. I would bring in sectional coaches from, from the university. I would bring in uh, professors. I would bring in pros. Uh, and, and almost all the time, these people volunteered to do this because they were so excited to work with, with my middle school students. And, and the students loved this extra attention. It became a kind of a badge of honor to be part of the, the Walt Clark Honor Band. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just a fabulous this idea, but, but the, the middle school and, uh, assistant principal didn't care for it because for her, it was a safety issue and a security issue. Like, well, who's going to be, you know, the students in all these rooms and who's going to be watching them and, and who's, you know, cleaning up after them and, and, you know, who's going to make sure that they're safe in the school. And as, as a young teacher, I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, but isn't this great? We're doing all these extra things for, for students. And, and so that was, I didn't stop doing the honor band, but there was always that, that tension with it, with that administrator. Right. And this, this idea that, you know, that there might not be uh, the same understanding uh, between us. For me, I thought it was incredible what we were doing for the students and, and uh, they were able to, you know, like unlock their potential, I think, and really soar. And, and they, they were featured at the state conference and I uh, got to do some amazing things. And then at the, at the high school level, uh, I had two different administrators and, and, and the first one was really, really supportive, which I was fortunate. And uh, the second one uh, really tried to be supportive, but he had this idea of, of fairness was cutting everybody equally. So when he had to make budget cuts, he, he, cut, he cut band the same way as he cut every other subject area. And again, my perspective was, are you sure you really want to cut band when band is the thing that, that brings the school like the most positive uh, acclaim and attention? And, and so again, it was just, uh, just a value difference. Uh, he was a good guy, but uh, I, I had to really fight to keep any percentage for the assistant director. And he just continued whittled away at the, the assistant band director position. And so there, there was some struggle there, um, but I just, I never gave up. So as we wrap up, um, I am just curious, uh, what do you enjoy most about your position at Lawrence University? And how does that fit in with all of the other things that you do? from um, being a conductor and, and teaching leadership and you're the professor of mindfulness for the music educator at Vanderkirk College and you're the professor of conducting at the American Band College. Like, how does it all fit together? I, I feel so fortunate to teach at Lawrence University. It's, it was a dream to be uh, invited to teach at my alma mater. And I love preparing students to be, you know, future educators, future music teachers, and the opportunity to, to conduct the symphonic band and, and the opportunity to guest conduct the wind ensemble and, and the orchestra. It's just, it's an amazing ex, uh, experience every day to change kids' lives and students' lives. And uh, I also get to teach conducting at the American Band College and teach mindfulness to graduate students and music educators um, 
it's called Mindfulness for the Music Educator through Vandercook College of Music. In addition to my professional life of, of, of teaching leadership and speaking and presenting and, and my work uh, with Upbeat Global, uh, I, I sometimes find that, yeah, it's a lot of juggling, a lot of plates spinning in the air. But for me, they all have like a central purpose and they're all connected through music and, and leadership and this idea that, that we, if we believe in what we're doing, we can make a positive change and a positive difference in students' lives. And, and through music, we can change the world for the better. So for, for me, it, it's like the perfect blending of all of these areas into one central purpose. As we close, um, Matthew, can you tell us where can people connect with you? Through many avenues, right? So I'd love for you to come to check out my website, upbeatglobal.com, where you'll find many resources, articles, videos, and uh, announcements about upcoming events. You can subscribe to my, my newsletter. And um, you can also find me on Facebook under my name, Matthew Arau, A-R-A-U, or my Facebook business page, which is Upbeat Global. Love to have you join our Upbeat community uh, by joining the Upbeat Leaders group on Facebook page. Also Instagram, Matthew Rao and Upbeat.Global on Instagram and, and Twitter, Matthew Rao as well. So there's like so many ways to connect. And uh, through, through my website, you can, you can send me an email as well. But I, I do love uh, to communicate, collaborate, work with, uh, music teachers all over the country and around the world. So I hope I hope we do get a chance to connect. And what closing advice or encouragement do you have for your fellow teachers? Hey, 2020 has been really difficult, and uh, I know we're not out of it yet. And so I know for for many of us, we've experienced you know like a sense of loss. Uh, it, it's if you can reflect, hey, it's not, this isn't what we signed up for. But I just want to share from how amazed I am by how the music teachers have responded and innovated and created and not let the challenge stop them from, from reaching their students and, and finding ways to include music in their teaching, even when it's a bunch of people on a screen. And many students have their videos off, which I know is really depressing. But I just want to say what you do matters and, and you make such a difference. And if we ever needed music and music education in the world, if there was ever a time, this is it. So please persevere. Persevere and stick it out. Don't make a, a short-term decision, right? I mean, don't make a long-term decision in this short term of challenge, like stay with it. And, uh, and it's going to be a bright light on the other side when we come through. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, Dr. Matthew Arau, um, for sharing your message with us. Um, thank you listeners for listening. You can watch a curtain call with, um, Dr. Arau at www.thedirectorspodium.com. Dot com. You can catch us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, all those avenues. Um, it's going to be a fun time where you get to find out more behind the scenes, of, more about his personal life. Um, it's just a great, great fun time. So we hope to see you there. And we hope that we've 
provided some inspiration for you to continue the vital work it is that you do.